Boy, another hard one. Last week, we were shown how the physical vulnerability and endangerment, the legitimate fear of surrounding neighbors and this restoration people's need for protection, introduced challenges into the very bold project of belonging that they had embarked upon ever since the day that they had begun to return from their time in exile. This week, the barrier lies in their pocketbooks. Nehemiah, by this point in history, has been made the governor of his homeland. And the lesson that he is learning before our very eyes today is one that many in similar positions as his have learned over and over again since. It's the economy, dummy. There, have been, there has been a famine, and his people's lives are a wreck. They're desperate and under enormous financial strain. There's a fast expanding gap between the haves and the have-nots at this moment in Judah's history. And as we've just heard in today's scripture, it is a direct result of how they've wound up choosing to balance their economic relationships with one another or not. The unlucky among them have had a bad crop year. Maybe pests invested, infested their crops. Maybe their streams dried up. Maybe their property wasn't as close to the water source as some of their neighbors were, and they got less produce than their more fortunate neighbors. Certainly, the additional burden of the king's taxes get named here as well. And less water means less crop produce. Less crop produce means less ability to support a family as well as maintain a large enough flock of sheep and goats to remain alive. And before you know it, these unfortunates of the so-called restoration are having to take new, drastic measures just to survive. Some borrow the money, either by borrowing supplies directly or from, from others or pledging their field, which is to say that they're giving away their long-term ability to sustain their family in favor of short-term gains. Others sell their children's labor, and worse, in their desperation. The people of Restoration-era Judah are in bad shape, and their collective situation is beginning to reveal as well that this project of building something together this project of sharing something new, of building a place to belong together, is also itself in rather bad shape. Every one of those desperate family farmers seemed to have been able to find some lenders among their own people willing to make a predatory loan, a loan with interest so high that it was destined to keep them in debt as debt slaves for the rest of their lives. The scripture reading is clear here today that there were those among the people willing to sacrifice social solidarity with the covenant people for their own personal profit. Now it's become me instead of us. And the economy has begun to reveal those emerging values. Choclonomics 101. 
Some must have been asking themselves in that time, whatever happened to building a place to belong? Whatever happened to us? Whatever happened to the shared vision we had that day that Cyrus sent us back to our homeland with a blank slate to build what we believed God wanted us to build? How did we lose sight of that? How did we let that project just slip away from us so easily? What the story that we've been carefully tracking over these past several weeks puts before our eyes today is that there is an economic dimension to belonging. That there is an aspect of this building a place to belong that eventually and inevitably puts us face to face with the stark material realities of what togetherness and what belonging actually look like on the ground. The blowing of the shofar there in the picture of the, on the screen was what announced in ancient Israel the year of the Jubilee. That year every 49 years when all the debts in the land were canceled. And I wonder... Can you sustain a shared sense of belonging? Can you sustain meaningful community when the very means of survival are so vastly different? When some in that very community are so incredibly desperate and others are taking advantage? And what can be done about that? How to reboot that project in the face of such stark realities as these that we hear about today. This passage that we have read here today is perhaps one of the biggest reasons why the figure of Nehemiah is so worth taking a close notice of and adding to the list as of those that we look to for models of true lived faith. Because we can all see what he's up against, can't we? We can all appreciate just how challenging his situation here as governor must be. Much to his credit, Nehemiah is brave enough to hear and to acknowledge these very real hardships that are hurting his people and tearing apart his community, and then to do two important things. And what does he do? First, and this is more in order of occurrence than it is of importance, first, Nehemiah challenges the values and actions of those nobles and officials that were taking advantage, that were making this tragedy an occasion to get rich rather than work at this famine as a shared problem. And he challenges them, doesn't he, by reminding them of what their shared values should be. Of how they even got back to this land to build back what they've built. We as a people, he says, were sold off into slavery once upon a time, into another country's power, and now we're back home by the grace of God. And now you're selling your very own people back into slavery so that I can buy them out of it, he says there in verse 8. It is an indictment as well as a reminder of who God has called them to be and how they got to where they are. And Nehemiah, to my mind, is 
Something of a hero for being willing to take the risk of saying that. The second thing that Nehemiah does, though, is to take a look at himself and how he's, he was living while his kindred were starving and going bankrupt. Nehemiah looks around this morning at his governor's palace and says to himself, you know, I've got a, a pretty swanky situation here myself. And the governors before him, it says there in verse 15, they, they had levied heavy tax burdens so that they could live it up at court. And Nehemiah then says, yet with all of this, with all of this, I didn't demand the food allowance of the governor because of the heavy burden of labor on my people. And then the passage closes, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah has done his best to bring this people back toward building that place of belonging that they had returned with a vision for, that was supposed to have been the very essence of the restoration, and that had somehow, somehow gone missing. And he does that by facing the problems where the problems are, both in himself and in his people. And I wonder, church, I wonder, how are the people of God doing today on that very same project? Is there hurting and economic desperation in our midst? Is there the same sort of taking advantage of desperation that sends people, even today, into perpetual, unending debt and modern versions of debt slavery? Do we, the church, Respond to it with the same brave introspection that Nehemiah did? Or with the same prophetic voice to call back the people of our time to remember who we are together and how we got to where we are? Nehemiah is just one brave, convicted person determined to do better and determined to remind the covenant people of what their part in doing better looks like. You know, faithfully responding to God's call on our lives to engage in restoration and to build places of belonging has always involved a call on the faithful to examine their economic relations and engage in deeper levels of sharing. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, right after the very formation of the church at Pentecost, it says there in Acts 244 and following, it says this, all who believed together, who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as they had need day by day. As they spent much time in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Did you hear that? Those early Christ followers were radical sharers. Their very form of sharing community was put on display for the whole world to see. And people of that time could neither deny nor look away from that it says that they had the goodwill of all the people. 
and that day by day the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. You know, I hear so much chatter about the state of the church today, how numbers are declining and institutions shrinking and having less voice in society. Have we tried living in a more compelling way? Have we tried sharing and modeling communities of belonging, undeniably touched by the hand of God in a compelling way? Those first Christians were just focusing on living their very best lives as disciples. And their movement was exploding, exploding. Even under stress in times of persecution, it was exploding. Even when some of those more faithful Christ followers were being led into the arenas to be eaten by the lions, it was exploding. Can you imagine what their lives must have looked like to be growing as a movement in a time like that? And much of that, much of that due to their economic witness, to that observable quality of their life together. Did you know that in the United Methodist Church, we have our own social principles, we call them, that are part of our book of discipline. I encourage you to read those if you've never done that before. And within those social principles, there is a subsection called the economic community, which reaffirms what I've been saying here today about how vital it is that we take a close look at this aspect of our lives together in our building of a place to belong and encouraging the world around us to do the same. And it says at the very beginning of that section, I'm going to read it to you here, it says this. It says, we claim, that's the United Methodist Church, we claim all economic systems to be under the judgment of God, no less than other aspects of the created order. Therefore, we recognize the responsibility of governments to develop and implement sound fiscal and monetary policies that provide for the economic life of individuals and corporate entities and that ensure full employment and adequate incomes with a minimum of inflation. We believe private and public economic enterprises are responsible for the social costs of doing business, such as employment and environmental pollution, and that they should be held accountable for these costs. We, again, support measures that would reduce the concentration of wealth in the hands of a few. We further support efforts to revise tax structures and to eliminate government support programs that now benefit the wealthy at the expense of other persons. He could be writing that to Nehemiah's very time. could be writing that right there in 5th century Judah. And it goes on from there to talk about our discerned values on property, on collective bargaining, on work-life balance. You ever thought about your work-life balance? On consumption, on poverty, on foreign workers, gambling, public debt, and many, many more topics than that. And we have a, a book of resolutions as well that that addresses these topics in more depth and specificity. And the point, the point is that our denomination is and should be 
still very invested and very interested in having our church and our communities reflect the best and most compelling vision of who Christ has called us to be for the world. There's some really, really insightful stuff in there in every major denomination. Worth its salt has similar documents as this of of how important it is for us to live out a compelling vision of belonging in the world. But you know what? No one ever came to faith, I don't believe, because of a really well-written resolution. We'll have trouble fitting folks within our doors, though, when we live out these kingdom values for all the world to see. It is the quality of our life here together that matters the most. And it's our courage as well. Our courage to do what the likes of Nehemiah did. To call us back to our best selves. And the integrity to take a hard look at our own houses and our church and call them back to the vision that has been set before us all. I want to invite you to consider that this week. If you've never read the social principles before, I'd invite you to look it up online, especially that section that I read for you this morning called the economic community. I want to invite you to ask yourselves, how can I and how can we live these values and call ourselves back to these values so that we can get back to the building together? So that our life together will be impossible to ignore. A couple of weeks ago in our confirmation class, we were taught a short Latin phrase that the curriculum told us informed all of the Protestant Reformation. It was at the very heart of the Protestant Reformation. And I wanted to share that with you this morning in closing. The phrase is Ecclesia Semper Reformenda Est. It was originally St. Augustine's saying and phrase, and it means simply, the church is always reforming. The church is always reforming. We are always doing what Nehemiah did and taking a hard look at ourselves so that we can move forward better. We are a self-critical people, not just a self-critical people, but a people that opens our hearts to let God speak and move us forward in a better direction. That's the true spirit of our church, as well as we seek to take, a closer, take on a closer resemblance to the place that God has called us to be. And all of God's people said, Amen.